I want to invite you to get your Bibles now. Turn to the book of Acts. Um, if you're visiting with us, we again welcome you. Our practice is to work our way through the, uh, the Word of God. And um, we presently are in the book of Acts and in chapter 15. So Acts chapter 15, I would invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. So not a very long section of Scripture, but a very important section of Scripture. Acts 15, 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Lord, we, thank, we are thankful this morning for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we have been able to uh, walk on this journey of the unfolding uh, spread of the gospel in the early church, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then, Lord, now even into the Gentile territories. And, Lord, as we do so, we want you, Lord, to shape and to fashion us, to see you in a fresh new light, to be more in awe of who you are, but, Lord, also to be teachable, and to learn and to grow so that we can be more conformed to uh, Jesus Christ, but also that we can recognize that you are still at work accomplishing your purposes through us to the end of the earth. And so, Lord, what we know not would you teach us, what we are not, Lord, would you make us, and what we have not, Lord, would you give us. And allow me, Lord, to be your messenger, Lord, to faithfully proclaim your truth today. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Years ago, a large statue of Christ was erected on the border of Chile and Argentina. And it was there to be a symbol of the peace that had been forged between the two countries. Once it was put up, the Chileans got a little agitated and upset because Jesus was facing toward Argentina and his back was toward Chile. And it caused quite a stir. And actually, as things kind of got worse and worse, there was one journalist who wrote an article, and basically his one statement caused great humor for the Chilean people and solved the problem. This is what he said. The people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. <laughs> Conflict averted. You may know or not know about what is known as the soccer war. 1969, there were two Central American countries that were battling together over the course of three games to reach the 1970 FIFA World Cup in Mexico. The first game, Honduras beat El Salvador 1-0. The second game, El Salvador won 
3-0, again, in their own country. And during that time, there was unrest happening at that game. Lots of conflict would be between the fans, lots of bad things happening between the fans. But there was a third game, and it was in a neutral territory in Mexico. And ultimately, El Salvador won 3-2 in extra time. But within three weeks, the countries would be at war. It's known as the soccer war or the hundred-hour war. But the truth is that the soccer game was only uh, where, where this national pride, of course, is present, right, in these things, only served to magnify the deeper issues and tensions that were going on between those countries because there was a, some border activity and, and people were being, being killed and armies were, were being organized. And after four days, 3,000 people died. And it was a, a sad event. But it all came out, so to speak, because of a soccer game. At least it brought it to the surface. And friends, potential conflict is always around the next corner, isn't it? A harsh response to your spouse. A misunderstood instruction at work. How and where your neighbors and their friends choose to park their cars. That crazy driver who dangerously cut you off this morning on your way to church. The person you walked by without acknowledging who now is thinking that you don't care about them. It's just around the corner. Your day's going well and all of a sudden it changes because some little conflict takes place. On Friday, I was at Business Costco getting some needed groceries. And I loaded the groceries into my car, and I, I sat there in my car, having done that, waiting to pull out. And I did the typical thing, you know, you're looking over your shoulder, looking in the mirrors. You're in a parking lot. It's Costco. It's busy. And there were two people with their big carts kind of walking by. And so I was patient, and I waited. And then I looked around some more after they had gone by, and there was no one around. And I start to pull out. And then in the corner of my peripheral, you know, just kind of there, I, I, I kind of sensed this something fast happening. And then I looked over, and there was these two ladies with this big shopping cart, and they're running through the parking lot. And I'm pulling out, and they stop, and I stop. And when they stop, because they kind of stopped in a sense of, all right, go ahead, I pulled out slowly, and then I moved forward. And as I'm moving forward, one of the ladies looks at me, she goes. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, really? I mean... I was, you know, slowly pulling out of my parking lot. I wasn't running around the parking lot, which you don't do, by the way, okay? If you want to be safe, don't run in a parking lot. But the red mist was rising up within me, and then I remembered what I was going to be preaching on this morning. <laughs> and I smiled and just went on with my business. Now, our text today is all about conflict, but it is connected to a greater theme in Acts that we are slowly discovering, and it's a theme of perseverance. See, in Acts, we're called to persevere in the face of persecution. There's been a lot of persecution. There's been imprisonment, beatings, and floggings, and stonings, in particular in Jerusalem. On the missionary journey, there's stonings, beatings, and people being dragged out of the city. Then there's persecution in the face, or sorry, there's perseverance in the face of false teaching. And we saw that last week with the whole Jerusalem council and the, the question about the grace of God. And now 
the emphasis is on persevering in the face of personal conflict. And I want to add this too, and I'm thinking where it might be, but certainly this is true. Another way that we must persevere is with our own internal conflict, not just with other people, but things that are happening with us. Can I even do this? The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. What's going on in him? And we just think about the different ways and things that we have to overcome. But today, the emphasis is on conflict. And so this morning, I want to I consider with you what it means for us to persevere through conflict for the glory of God. Because conflict will come. Now, before we get into the passage, it's worth hearing from one of my former professors in the seminary. His name is Dr. Stuart Custer who says about this passage, he says, this paragraph is evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. If mere men, hero-worshipping followers of the apostles, had written Acts, this sad account would have been omitted. The Holy Spirit inspired it as it stands to show us all that even great and good men have their flaws and can stumble even as we can. Just very, very helpful to set the context and give us perspective about what we're going to see here. And God is truly kind to us, isn't he, to give us such a a raw passage of scripture in order to teach us to persevere. And in the face of conflict, to respond biblically and ultimately to trust in God's sovereignty. And so this passage is going to unpack in three sections, the, the context, the actual conflict, and then what I'm calling the compromise. We'll get there uh, slowly. Jump with me now at what I'm calling the context that initially shocks us. The context that initially shocks us. You see, we have these two characters, don't we? First of all, there's Barnabas. Barnabas shows up in Acts for the first time in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. It's a great little section of scripture if you remember. The context there was the church being of one mind, wanting to care for one another. And Barnabas, what does he do? Well, he's a wealthy man and he has a piece of property and so he sells that piece of property and he comes to the apostles and he gives them the proceeds for the property because he wants to to be a part of helping those who are in need. And we find out there he is called Joseph and his name is Barnabas, means son of encouragement. And again, he's a wealthy man, and ultimately he would be a key trusted leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he was sent by the church in Jerusalem to the fledgling church in Antioch, where he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, we're told, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, if we are honest, we would love to have Barnabas in our church. We would love to have him as a home group leader or as an elder or as a pastor on staff here or simply as a friend. He's the kind of guy you want to hang out with because he is an encouragement. And then when Paul is converted and comes to Jerusalem, and of course, remember, Paul was the murderer of these early Christians. It is Barnabas that embraces him, believes in him, and encourages his Christian brothers in Jerusalem to embrace him. That's just the kind of guy he is. So then we have Barnabas, then we have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, we're told. He will continue to take the gospel 
to the end of the earth. He will write many letters to the churches all across the Mediterranean. He will be the key man that God has chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He will be the leader among leaders, training men, mentoring them, and encouraging them as they are out serving the Lord for his glory. And he would leave a godly legacy. And friends, if we're honest, we would love to have Paul in our church. <laughs> we would love to have his evangelistic zeal and his, his encouragement to do that. We would love to, to be taught by him on subjects like marriage and family. He would keep us anchored to sound doctrine. And friends, when Barnabas was in Antioch, he left Antioch and sought Paul in Tarsus and brought him back to Antioch and together there they taught this little church to be grounded in the faith and it would become, you might want to say, the, the missionary epicenter to the Gentiles. And this is Barnabas and Paul working together. And it's in Antioch that Barnabas and Saul are chosen by the church to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to go on their first missionary journey. They would spend years working side by side, preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, establishing churches in the faith, identifying and training elders to be faithful leaders in the church. So clearly, friends, they were the early church's dynamic duo. Right? Gospel success together. People are converted. Churches are established. Elders are raised up. Gospel persecution together, right? They would endure persecution and suffering and stoning and being dragged out of cities, and they get up and they do it all again together. They were a tenacious team in the face of opposition. And then we have gospel defense together. Together they stood against the party of the Pharisees that wanted to distort the grace of God. And we read in verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, after some days, likely is referring to we spent the winter, right, in Antioch. And now what we want to do is we want to go back to these churches. Now, remember, these are the places where they went and they preached the gospel and they were persecuted. Right? The Jews rose up and they ran them out of town and they went, they went back and they went back to those churches and established them. Now they're going saying, we want to go back again and we want to help them out. And I, I understand this. When I've had relationships with churches across the world, there's a wonderful delight to go to a place where you have had some impact, where our church has had some impact, and to see these sister churches. It's a wonderful thing. They're still passionate about the ministry here, right? So basically, Paul is saying it's time for us to get back to the work of gospel ministry. Winter is over, and back in that time, people didn't travel much in the winter. They would stay home. It was a time for wars, it was a time for farming, and it was a time for travel. And Paul is saying to Barnabas, I think it's time for us to get back at it, Barnabas. Let's go and visit the brothers. Now, the word visit here doesn't mean just oh, say hello. It's actually a word that encompasses the, the idea of shepherding. 
So they're saying, let's go back and continue working with them. And this is so important for us to see, friends. Neither Paul or Barnabas are content with only the planting of churches. They both want to see that the churches are nurtured and strengthened in the ongoing ministry of the word. I mean, these guys are faithful brothers and faithful co-laborers, still strategizing about gospel ministry and looking to see that the mission of Christ uh, that he had sent them on is flourishing. So they were like Batman and Robin. They were like sugar and spice. They were, they were like peanut butter and jelly as far as ministry is concerned. They were meant to be together. But this dynamic duo now shockingly find themselves in a dynamic divide that will shake their relationship to the core. And when you think about it, it's not that huge of an issue. And we might be asking, how could these two friends who clearly loved each other in the Lord allow conflict to rise up and divide them? And friends, what we should be thankful for is that Luke doesn't whitewash the leaders of the early church. He doesn't somehow sanitize what's happening here and clean it up, so to speak, so that they appear to be better. He gives us the raw data of what is happening here. Not all the nitty-gritty details, but sufficient to let us know that this conflict was serious. He's raw, he's truthful, and ultimately, friends, that is helpful. Still, for us, it is shocking that Paul and Barnabas after being through so much together, now find themselves at odds with each other. And friends, hear this. If if conflict and division can happen with Paul and Barnabas, it can surely happen to us. It can surely happen to you. Godly people can be in conflict, can have opposing beliefs and opinions about things which can harm their relationships. One of my best friends growing up, his name was Spencer. And um, almost every day after, after school, uh, we would go home, we would get changed, and we would go up to the soccer fields, and we would play soccer together. We just loved to play soccer. And we would play what was called three and in. If it was just us, that means one person's in goal, and you try and stop the other person from scoring. Once they score three, you switch. The other person's in goal, and you just play. We just we would do that all the time, just over and over again. Well, one day, it was like raining uh, which is in England perfect weather for soccer, okay? And it was it was it was muddy, and if you were playing in goal, you were diving around in the mud and the wetness, and, and we had such a great time. But we were covered in mud. When I say covered in mud, we were covered in all up our arms and our face, all that kind of stuff. It was nasty. And so, when we were done, uh, the, the, it rained so much there was this big puddle in the middle of the field. So we walked over like, oh, we're going to clean ourselves up. So I walked down, and I kind of crouched down, and I'm washing my arms and my hands and, and my face. And Spencer comes up behind me, and he pushes me. And I go face first completely into this water. And I was not a happy camper. And I was now soaked to the core. I was full of mud, but now everything is soaked, and it's wet and I was really, really mad. And I look over at Spencer, and what he, what's he doing? <laughs> he thought it was the most funny thing in the world. And of course, what do I do as his friend? I start chasing him, wanting to kill him. <laughs> it's what good friends do, 
The problem was I was muddy. My soccer cleats were full of mud, and so I was slipping around. I wasn't as fast as him, and I couldn't, I couldn't catch him. And he was still laughing, and I was still angry. And the red mist was growing and growing and growing. And then I said some harsh words to him in anger, and he just continued to run off. I didn't talk to him for nine months. A little conflict. Something done in fun caused a rift between this friendship. And it was eating at me for, for a while. Once, you know, once the mist settled and you're trying to you know, figure out what to do. And again, just as a young child, I wasn't a believer at that point in time. And I remember after school one day, walking home. That's what we used to do years ago, by the way, was walk to and from school. We were walking home, and I happened to be walking near him. And so I caught up with him, and I said, Spencer, can I talk to you? Um, I'm really sorry for the things I said. Um, will you please forgive me? Uh, can we be friends again? He was like, yeah. And so that night, what did we do? We went and played soccer together up in the... But the thing was, I lost nine months. I lost nine months because of a conflict that I hadn't been willing to resolve. Now, I realized I was young. But friends, this is the kind of stuff that happens to young people. It happens to adults. And there's probably people that are coming to your mind right now, even as I share some of this stuff. Friends, conflict can come suddenly to any of us. It can also be shocking to even think that we are in conflict together because of the, the, the such wonderful relationship we have had together for so long. Good people who have lived lives together, worshipped and fellowshiped together, shared meals in their homes together, can quickly find themselves divided over some issue an issue that is testing their relationship. The context that initially shocks us. It is shocking, but it is real. Secondly, I want you to notice then the conflict that truly reflects us. Because what we see in this text is not just Paul and Barnabas. They are a reflection of us. Now you can imagine how this conversation went. Paul says to Barnabas, Barnabas, let's go back to the place we've been and see how the churches are doing. And Barnabas says, Paul, that's such a great idea. I was hoping you would say that. I miss those people. I miss spending time with them. You remember that person that we were trying to deal with that particular theological issue? And he was a really funny guy. I can't wait to see him again. Let's do it, Paul. Let's go back. Let's make plans. Oh, by the way, I would like to bring John Mark with us again to assist us. I know that he left us early in Pamphylia and didn't stick around for the work God had for us in Galatia, but I think that he's ready. I think that it would be great for him to restore his confidence. And also, I think he can be a missionary yet. And Paul responds, you've got to be kidding over my dead body. Now, what we need to see here is this was not a sudden conflict but one that had been brewing and now was coming to a head. We know that because the Greek 
tense being used here is the imperfect tense to describe both Barnabas and Saul's desires. The imperfect tense is used to convey repeated action in the past time. Now, this is important for us to see. So when we read Barnabas' words, wanted to take, this isn't the first time he's mentioned something like this. And when the Apostle Paul says, did not want to take, we understand he had already communicated he did not want to take him. So Barnabas had already and repeatedly expressed to Paul his desire to take John Mark, and Paul had already repeatedly expressed to Barnabas that he did not want to take John Mark. It may have sounded something like this. Barnabas has been repeating, repeatedly saying, Paul, I've been telling you how bad John Mark feels about leaving us so soon in Pamphylia. How he has apologized many times. And I would really like to encourage him to continue to pursue gospel ministry. And Paul has been saying repeatedly, Barnabas, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, but I don't think he's ready at all. Repeatedly. And you can hear the argument of each man, can't you? Barnabas says, everyone deserves a second chance. Yes, John Mark may have left us prematurely. He was young and unprepared, but he's learned his lesson. And he'll be useful for us on the journey. And Paul responds, John Mark abandoned us and is not truly committed to the work. I don't care if he's your cousin, because he was, or if his, mother, his, her, his mother's home is where the church in Jerusalem gathers for, for worship or for church. I don't care. He, doesn't, he, he wasn't trusted. He abandoned us. He deserted us. Where has he been? Where was John Mark when we were camping out or concerned for our lives? Where was he when we were hungry and being stoned and dragged out of the city? That's right. While we were living out for me to live Christ and to die is gain, all the while John Mark slept in his comfortable bed with all his comfortable sheets, taking warm baths and eating rich, abundant meals. I realize it doesn't say that in the text, but I'm trying to give, trying to give life to what's going on here, right? And Barnabas responds, Paul, don't you think people deserve a second chance? Don't you remember how I took a chance with you in Jerusalem? How I stood up for you and stood with you when our Jewish brothers were suspicious of you and not buying the fact that you had been converted on the Damascus Road? Ouch. Friends, the truth of the matter is that if we are to take a poll this morning, and we could, asking the question, who do you think was right? Likely this room would be divided. And quite frankly, your answer to that question might be more revealing about who you are than who was right. In other words, how you are wired. You'll see up on the screen, there's two different approaches here. Barnabas was a, a man committed to the nurture and the encouragement of men. And we need people like that. Paul was committed to the furtherance of the mission. And we need people like that. So who's right? Well, 
We know that both are good men filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that both men are committed to the gospel, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We know that both men are committed to the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles, but one cannot have mission without men. They're both necessary. Both aspects of ministry are important, aren't they? Commitment to the ongoing mission is important and commitment to the nurturing and training men who can then be committed to the ongoing mission is important. All of it's important. What we have here, Luke describes as a sharp disagreement. Their conflict resulted in this sharp disagreement. It literally means an irritation or a violent clash. Now, they didn't go to blows here. It's not what's going on here. This is not some kind of an amicable discussion, you know, say, let's agree to disagree, you know, it's like, hey, Paul, I know that, that there's something I want to talk to you, it's okay if you really don't want to talk, but we can talk, and I want to talk to you about John Mark, and I know that, you know, he left us, and you might be upset about that, and if what I'm saying is really offensive to you, it kind of back off, let me know, and it's not that kind of discussion. What you have here are two people that are passionate about what they're con- convicted of and convinced of. Barnabas, his his God-given DNA is to be an encouragement and to lift people up. Paul's God-given DNA is to be bold. That's what he was doing with his persecution. That's what he's doing with the gospel. He's a tough guy. So both of them were certainly verbally passionate and rooted in deep conviction. But each of them was irritated by each other's position. Now, the word that is used here to describe this provoking is found in Scripture in three other locations that are worth noting. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Paul is going into Athens, and he is provoked in his spirit by all the idols that he sees. He's irritated rightfully so. You know what that's like. You, go, you walk in some place where there's just kind of lewd and pagan stuff going on. Your heart's like, why? Why is this happening? You understand that. 1 Corinthians 13.5, this might, be, might surprise you. Love does not let itself be irritable. It is not easily provoked. Same word. But on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, we're told there were the ideas of this word provoke, is to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, provoke one another to love and good works. So irritate one another to love and good works. Maybe not irritate, but the point is to, to motivate people by means of God's truth, to love and good works. So this, this, this is a community kind of collective idea. There's a sharp disagreement, and they are provoked here. Now, friends, there is a disagreement among commentators as to the level of the passion expressed during this disagreement. Listen to what Lenski says. We need not overdraw the picture and speak of passionate, bitter words, of hot tempers and anger. Paul and Barnabas were not men of that common, cheap type. This clash was one between incompatible convictions, Barnabas being sure that Mark would prove fit for the task, Paul equally convinced that he would not prove fit. Neither insulted the other, nor did anything regrettable. That's an interesting take. 
And I personally would say, I think it's a weak take. I think there's more intensity going on, but there's nothing here about anyone insulting one another. right? Then on the other hand, you have someone like A.T. Robinson who says, this son of consolation loses his temper in a dispute over his cousin. Paul uses sharp words towards his benefactor and friend. So you have these kind of competing ideas. Now, what's going on here? What we do know is that Luke doesn't take sides. In other words, he doesn't flesh out the specifics and any attempt to do so will will misrepresent the text. See, some conclude that since verse 39, we're told is this is the last time that Barnabas is, is, is mentioned in the book of Acts, that this is evidence that Paul was right. Or some will conclude the fact that since the Antioch church affirmed Silas to go with Paul, they're saying, well, see, the Antioch church affirmed Paul to be right. But that's to miss the point of the text. That is not what is being communicated here. Luke, if you remember, looking at the big picture, his spotlight is not on all the events surrounding the spread of the gospel taking place. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, primarily the spotlight is on Peter. In Acts chapter 13, primarily the spotlight is on Paul, all the way through to chapter 28. He's not telling us everything that happened, but he's talking about Peter, who was the key man among the Jews, and Paul, who's the key man among the Gentiles. So silence about Barnabas does not mean that Barnabas is to be blamed, nor does the commendation Paul and Silas receive demonstrate that they are right. Friends, however we look at it, this conflict is heartbreaking. It's sad. It's grievous. It was sinful. The point here isn't to take sides, but to warn us that good, Christ-loving, and gospel-loving followers of Christ can suddenly and shockingly have passionate disagreements that result in division. And we must fight to have a healthy dialogue when those times take place. It isn't a matter of if such conflict will take place, but when. Are we prepared? Are we prepared for good, healthy, and biblically guided conversations when such disagreements rise up? Are we prepared to to handle the different, I want to say, personalities and convictions that people have about gospel ministry and what should happen in the church? What's been helpful for me through the years I learned years ago this, but are the four rules of communication found in Ephesians chapter 4. These have been helpful for me in life and ministry. They've helped me in my marriage when my wife and I have had disagreements. They've helped me in ministry when maybe I've been sitting with a, a church leadership or board or a group of deacons, whatever the context might be, and there's conflict going on. It's helped me in life as I deal with people who may be angry with me for some reason or that I'm upset with for some reason. These are uh, principles that are taught in basic biblical counseling training, but they find their source in Ephesians chapter 4. And you have to wonder if Paul in his mind is reflecting on this encounter as he lays out these realities. I'm just going to highlight them for you here. I'm not getting into too much detail. I'm not preaching two sermons here, right? 
I want to be careful, but I want you to see the practical things that are helpful here. First of all, um, Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And what he's saying here is, be honest. Speak truthfully. Right? Others cannot read your mind. You have to open your mouth. This is a struggle for me. I have to open my mouth. I have to communicate. I'm always processing things up here. Honesty is more than not lying. It is speaking the truth. And unfortunately, in our society today, um, honesty seems to be like, I'm just telling you everything that's in my heart. That's not honesty. Honesty is, is careful to speak the truth that needs to be spoken in that context for the building up of the body of Christ or the building up of the other person or to deal with that problem. It is speaking lovingly and truthfully, respectfully, for the sake of resolve and restoration. So be honest. Secondly, this comes from Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. You may want to turn to Ephesians as we go through these. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So it's okay to be angry, but don't be sinfully angry. But sinless anger doesn't last too long. Because our sin is in there, and it's working its way, and soon it's going to be you know, sinful anger, right? And that's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your rest. So the idea here is keep current. Deal with things quickly. Deal with things, and using that language, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give any opportunity for the devil. And use the energy that you have from that anger as the means to say, I'm going to solve this problem, I'm going to pursue restoring this thing, rather than huffing and puffing and going your own direction. The third, Ephesians 4.29 through 30, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the, point, the principle here is this, attack the problem, not the person. How many times have you been in conflict with someone and the greater amount of the actual conversation is actually not about the thing that you're in conflict about? It's about the fact, well, why did you wink that way when you said that thing? Or how come you smiled when you said that thing? Or how come you had that expression? Or how come you said it with this way and you meant this? And you're not even talking about the issue at hand. And you start attacking the person rather than dealing with the problem. We're so, so quickly derailed to attack the person. So don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. But then also in, in, in verse 15 of Ephesians 4, we're called here to use edifying words to encourage and build up. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So speaking the truth in love. All right? Be honest, keep current, attack the problem, not the person. The last one here is act, don't react. Verses 31 and 32. Verse 31 lists our natural, sinful reactions that we don't even think about. In other words, they are passive. They just happen. Something happens, someone cuts you off. Right? 
you know, something bad happening. You don't have to think. You don't, you know, if someone cuts you off, you don't, you know, kind of tap your finger. Look at the words here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let's see, which one of those, which one of those do I want to respond? No, we don't think about this. We just do it. It just, bleh. It just happens. It's passive. It's who we are. It's our flesh rising up. Don't react, but act. And this is verse 32. And this is what God calls us to. It lists words that are active. In other words, words that are hard to put on. Look at what it says. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. Those aren't natural things for us. Those are things we have to fight to do. We have to think about that. Someone cuts us off in traffic. We don't like, oh, so nice to meet you. Unless, of course, you're being sarcastic, right? No, you've got to fight to say, I'm not going to respond this way. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be forgiving. I'm going to be. You're putting on Christ. You're putting on Christ. You're putting on Christ. John Calvin, writing on this text in Acts 15, warns us. He says, Therefore, we will be admonished by the example that unless the servants of Christ take heed, there be many chinks through which Satan will creep in to disturb that concord, which means unity, um, uh, which is among them. Satan wants to undermine our unity. In your marriage, Satan wants to undermine your unity. He's going to be clicking away at the, the, the links of the chain. He wants to get in there. He wants the conflict to reign. So whether it's home, whether it's in church, whether it's the workplace, that's what he's after. So be warned and be prepared. We must see in Acts 15 with Paul and Barnabas that it is a reflection of what is in our hearts. So we've seen the context. We've seen the conflict. Now let's look at what I'm calling the compromise that ultimately encourages us. The last words that we read were, and there arose a sharp disagreement. Now, here's the result of that sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. Paul and Barnabas had this sharp disagreement. And we ultimately see that that Barnabas goes south to Cyprus, and Paul goes north to Syria and Cilicia. Now, with this sharp disagreement, this dynamic duo, separate, never to work together again, as far as we know. We don't have any record of it. And that's a sad, heartbreaking, and grievous reality. But it's not the end of the story, friends. Even with their deep-rooted convictions and passionate words, somehow Paul and Barnabas come to a ministry compromise. We might wonder, did they go for a walk and contemplate you know, all the red mist that was floating around in that conversation? Did they sleep on it? Did they retreat to places and contemplate and to pray? We're not told. But clearly, they are both still good men filled with the Holy Spirit. They're both still committed to the gospel. They're both still committed to the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. And likely the fumes of conflict had diminished somewhat, but the conviction 
still remain. Friends, God has called them to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and they both wanted to press on and fulfill that mission. They didn't allow their conflict to end their ministry passion. Now, friends, there are people today who have been a part of gospel-believing churches who have allowed conflict within the church to stop them from actually having fellowship with the, the body of Christ. As mature Christians, we should not allow that to take place at all. Conflict doesn't have to derail your relationship with the Lord or your relationship with the church. And so they come to a compromise of sorts, right? Barnabas will take John Mark and travel south to Cyprus, which, by the way, was the original plan. It is Paul who will take Silas and would travel north through Syria and Cilicia. Now, what we must see here is that the sovereign hand of God, who is constantly at work despite the inexcusable conflict between two brothers, still accomplishes his ultimate purposes. What was intended to be a single mission of two men now becomes a dual mission with four men. Friends, God's math isn't always our math, is it? In God's economy and according to his sovereignty, division equaled multiplication. Now, a little caveat here. This should not be our plan of ministry. But this is how the sovereignty of God works. He works in spite of our conflicts and our sinfulness to get his work done. In God's sovereignty, now you have not just one team, you have two teams, right? This is the result of this. Two things happen now as a result of this. A broader gospel ministry. Barnabas returns with Mark to Cyprus to visit and provide shepherding for the churches established on that island. If you remember, they came up through Cyprus and they, they stopped in a couple of different places taking the gospel there. So they're going back to do ministry. Paul and Silas ventured into new territory to visit these two areas, churches in Syria and Cilicia, we have no record of that in, in Acts so far. And yet there were churches that were there. And so Paul and Silas are going there to encourage and to strengthen the people in those churches. And God is the one who's orchestrating ultimately his will, even through our sinfulness. Just try and put your mind around that. I can't. Why? We can't do that because we don't have the capacity for that. But our sovereign God does. Now, that doesn't excuse our behavior. It doesn't excuse Paul and Barnabas for their sinful behavior toward each other. But we step back saying, Lord, thank you that you are a God who can take a mess and you can produce things according to your will in spite of our sinfulness. And let me remind you, friends, all of us in this room are sinful multiple times during the day. We're not all squeaky clean, like the world thinks, what makes you think you're better than us? We don't. We just know we're, we're not. And yet God still chooses to work through us. He still accomplishes his purposes in that way. The second thing here is a deeper gospel training. Both Paul and Barnabas will now be giving vital experience and training and mentoring to two men for further gospel ministry. In God's providence, John Mark 
would learn how to endure in order to be steadfast and confident in the ministry, eventually Mark would be, be equipped to faithfully write a gospel specifically intended for a Greek and Gentile audience. And God's provision, Silas becomes a trusted and valued, valued ministerial co- colleague of Paul and Peter. We see that in Acts chapter 16. His Roman citizenship is a key issue as they are uh, in that particular town of Philippi. The point is, friends, that God's multiplication sovereignly brought out of division would result in further and deepening ministry to the end of the earth. And friends, that is a compromise that ultimately encourages us. It's not the plan for ministry, but it is a wonderful aspect of the grace of God and the kindness of God and the sovereignty of God through whatever mess that we've gone through to bring about his purposes. And I look back when we began Gateway Bible Church. I had been through a mess. And yet God orchestrated and worked his plan so we could start this church. So that we could even be here together, gathered in this way. Now friends, it's clear from scripture that reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas did take place. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. I want you to see this. So I, I want to kind of dispel your thinking that, you know, that as Barnabas went with Mark down the, down the creek, they kind of, you know, kind of barking at each other as they went, right? They went their separate ways. They, they had a, a new plan, so to speak. But what we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6 is this. Paul is speaking, talking about uh, de- defending his legitimate, uh, uh, his legitimate uh, responsibility as, as a shepherd. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I? who have no right to refrain from working for a living. He's speaking about Barnabas not as this guy that I don't like anymore. He's speaking about Barnabas as as a guy who is a faithful brother in the ministry, and he's an equal with him. There's no resentment. There's no sense of inequality. There's a sense of we're united in ministry, but we see things differently. And it's also clear from Scripture that, that Paul and Mark would be reconciled. Let me give you a few other passages. Colossians 4, 11 and 10. And, and the Apostle Paul is going to be listing off a, a, a number of people. But in verse 10, it says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. This is Paul writing, right? My fellow prisoner greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, those, uh, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And just let that settle in. The book of Philemon, at the end of it, Philemon 23 and 24 says, again, Paul speaking, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. But probably the the sweetest passage of Scripture is found in 2 Timothy, Paul's last written record. We call it his last will and testament. In verse 11 of chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, 
for he is very useful to me for ministry. Friends, of all the young men Paul could have requested to be with him while he is getting ready to die, he's asking for Mark. The one who was once useless has now become very useful. You see, there was a, there was a compromise of sorts. They had to work through it. And both men are still committed to the gospel mission. And they still understood their role and their function. But they were men of deep conviction. And yet we see their relationship with each other is resolved. We don't know exactly how and when or to what degree all that happened. But we see it certainly is present. Now friends, I want to bring this together as we close. Our time is real short here. But let me leave you with three things. Um, maybe to, to chew on this a little bit. Some of it's going to be reflective of what we've already talked about. Some of it will still be instructive. First of all, conflict is inevitable. If you are a Christian and haven't experienced conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, it's probably because of two things. Number one, you became a Christian this morning, maybe 20 minutes ago, and you just haven't had the opportunity to get in conflict with anyone. Secondly, It's because you've never stayed anywhere long enough or attempted to forge any meaningful relationships with other people in the church so that you can even have conflict with them. Friends, God calls us to have a one another relationship, to build into each other, to dig deep into each other. And when we do that, niggling things are going to happen. And we're going to have to sort through things. And that's okay, because God gives us wisdom and instruction. See, we're all sinful people saved by grace, and our salvation doesn't automatically remove our sinful tendencies. We we can still get snarky and angry and miffed. We can still feel left out or slighted or sinned against. We can still struggle with our comforts and our preferences and our wants. And since conflict is inevitable, we need to always be learning how to handle conflict in a biblical manner, seeking to honor God with our lives, our words and our actions and our attitudes, all coming together under his umbrella. Conflict, friends, is inevitable. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you tooled? Secondly, conflict is redeemable. But how? Well, first of all, we must pursue love. I've been involved in biblical counseling as a pastor for years, and I've had people, couples come into my office or individuals, and I might have a husband say, my wife doesn't doesn't care about me. I don't love her anymore. Okay, that's nice. Um, All right, Um, we're commanded to love one another. Can you do that? No. Okay. Um, We're commanded to love our neighbor. Can you do that? No. We're commanded to love our enemies. Can you do that? See, friends, you you, you can't get out from under God (laughs) and excuse yourself. God calls us to be people who are united by love. Love is, it's not this kind of, 
fuzzy thing that's floating out there. This is rooted in the gospel. This is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in what he's called us to. If we're God's children, we are to love one another in such a way that the world looks at us and says, man, we want that. Love, we must pursue it. That's one of the ways we pursue redemption here of conflict. Secondly, we must pursue peace. Romans 12, verse 18 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, not everyone else, not even the person that you are in conflict with, as much as it depends on you, what? Live peaceably with all. I mean, you're in conflict? All right, I've got to handle this in a way that's going to bring about peace. Not handle it in the way so I can give my two cents and I can be right. No, handle it in such a way that we can have peace. Now, peace isn't saying whatever. That's not the peace. Peace is working through resolving the conflict so that when you're done, it's solved. You've, you've done the hard work of walking through the problem. Pursue, pursue love, pursue peace. The third thing there, you must pursue Christ. In other words, he must be at the center of it. Romans 5, 8 through 10 tells us that we're, un, excuse me, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and we're enemies. But we were reconciled by God through the death of Christ. We've been reconciled through Christ. So friends, lasting reconciliation is only possible when we keep Christ at the center. Some of the things we might pick up from the world of psychology is, it tends to be band-aids to resolving conflict. Why? Because they don't have Christ. And friends, it's Christ that holds things together. It's Christ that gives us the glue that we need to say we can press on and we can grant forgiveness. Christ must be at the center in order for our conflict to be redeemed. There's probably more to say on that. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is redeemable. And third, there is hope. If you're seeking to be restored to a brother or sister in Christ because of some conflict you have been going through, the Bible says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And you might be thinking, well, I thought that verse was about prayer. And you'd only be a really small smidgen right. That verse is given to us in the context of resolving conflict in the church. The two or three people that are gathered together, and Jesus says, I am there with you, is describing conflict and its resolve. And let's just think about this. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 through 17, often known as the passage that's called, you know, talking about church discipline. I prefer to call it a text that teaches us about biblical love and restoration. But notice what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, what? You have gained your brother. This is conflict. This is resolved. Now it continues on. It says, but if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you. That, it, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it seems harsh, and it is. But in these first few stages, the, the, the goal, the goal, first of all, is repentance of sin, and the goal is restoration. Restoration. 
The goal is that things are reconciled, that they're resolved, that there's forgiveness, that there's peace, that there's love, that Jesus is at the center. But it's the person who refuses that path that has taken down the process. And by the way, these are Jesus' words. These are his, his instructions. That ultimately, in the context of a church, we have to say, you know what? You're no longer going to be a part of the formal membership of this particular church. That's because it's your choice. You're choosing this by your unwillingness to listen, to be restored, and to repent. Now, the bottom line here is this. There is hope. You say, this looks like a harsh process. Friends, this is a church exercising love to help people be restored in their relationships. And sometimes our conflict requires the help of the body of Christ. Be thankful for that. And remember that Christ is with you as you seek to be restored to your brother and sister in Christ. Friends, when there is conflict, be sure that God's sovereignty is already at work. Now, we can't control God's sovereignty. We don't even know what it is. We have a responsibility to chart a path in that conflict in such a way that it's biblical and honoring God and is pursuing Christ-like resolution for the glory of God. May that be the tone in the heart of your life and of our church as we move forward together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we need this. Today, some of us are going to go home and we're going to be in conflict. And probably over something that to other people might seem silly, might seem petty, but it will draw, it will cause a wedge to be driven in, in between two people that are husband and wife or friends or whatever it might be. And yet, Lord, you desire for us to work out those conflicts in such a way, Lord, that honor and please you and bring resolve. Allow us, Lord, to be warned by this. On these truths. To be mindful that you are at work in us, even through conflict. Lord, this is, a, this is a, a way that you want to grow us. That conflict might be the ground where you're testing us to see what is there. Like sponges, Lord, you're pressing down to see what comes out of our hearts. So Lord, help us to fight, to glorify you in the midst of our conflicts recognizing that you are sovereignly present and at work even through the difficulties we face when we are in conflict with one another. We ask this, Lord, now in your precious holy name. Amen.